this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebound the Safety. This week, we're talking all about behavioural safety and culture with a behavioural scientist and also finishing the conversation about how tech can help us in that space as well. We cover loads of stuff in this conversation. Let's jump into the intro. I'll tell you some more about it. Let's go. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution or one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviours. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing a stereotype. Brought to you by Risk What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is a YouTube channel channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin so if you're new here hit subscribe hit the bell hit all of those things my name is james but first and from risk fluent limited and rebranding safety is our purpose so thank you very much for joining us on our journey today we're talking to an amazing lady called george reed who's a behavioral safety behavioral scientist behavioral safety person and at first some of us with the tribalism that's going on in safety which is annoying as shit we'll be like oh why are we doing the behavioral safety do me a favor and listen to this and listen to how similar it is and how closely aligned um, new view, behavioral safety, all of these things are there. They're the same. They are the same. So if that's one thing you take away from this, then please, I hope that is what you take away from it. Is there bad practices in either side? Is there shit versions? But yes, there is 100%, but it doesn't mean we need to be tribalistic with each other. And have a listen, like I say, they're so closely aligned. And then we're going to talk about, with Jules, how she is using her experience and knowledge and helping a tech company which I'm really excited about. So we kind of, we talk a lot about safety, behavior, we set the foundation and then we finish up by talking about uh, the work that Jules is doing with the company, um, Tended as well. But I won't say any more, I'll let Jules tell you all about it in the episode. Let's go. All right, Jules, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. No worries, no worries. Do you want to give us a little introduction into yourself and then we'll and then we'll crack on? Sure. So I'm Jules Reed, and currently I am a behavioural scientist for a company called Tended, which is a small startup tech company. Um, but a little bit of history is that I um, I started work in health and safety back, I think, in something like 2006. So it's, it's quite a while ago. Um, and I also had a teaching degree and I also was um, taking lots and lots of psychology courses, um, more as a hobby than anything. Um, and then I was lucky enough to see an advert for Balfour Beatty Construction um, and they were looking for a behavioural safety trainer and they wanted SMSTS which I had no idea what it was, but it's a, it's a health and safety qualification. They wanted petals, which I had no idea what it was, mm. but it's a training qualification. And they wanted someone with an interest in um, psychology. So I phoned them and said, I don't know what your qualifications are. I've just had a look at them, but, but will my qualifications do? And they said, they'll more than do, apply. Mm. And so that was my first job um, in behavioural safety was with Balfour Beatty Construction. And I'd never heard of behavioural safety before. So they said, you've got six months to become an expert. <laughs> 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 and then you hit the ground running after six months. So that's what we did. 
And your your background prior to that, sorry, was what psychology and and yeah. So I so I worked um, with Derbyshire County Council actually um, in the education department, but specifically in health and safety. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Because that's a, that is a weird mix of qualifications. When someone yes. knows psychology or at least has an interest, an SMSTS, which is a random, a random one really, and then petals. Like, I don't think anyone that's got a petals has got an SMS, SMSDS, and anyone who's got an exactly. SMSDS has got a petal. Exactly. It was almost like, do you know, I'm a really big believer in um, life provides you with opportunities I'm a big believer in this and people very often say you are so lucky to be in a job that you love and I think am I lucky because because I I see people who have opportunity put in front of them and literally don't see it it's in front of their face and they don't see it I have people who um see get opportunities but then kind of back away from them and and won't take the risk and then I see people who um, they see opportunities and, you know, regardless of the risk, they take it. And that's exactly what I did. Mm. You know, it was like the universe has given me this opportunity to put all those skills together. If you believe in the universe, it's, you know, whatever that that extra thing yeah. is. Um, but it but it's all converged with, you know, exactly what I've got. And, uh, and I, I genuinely believe that I'm meant to be where I am because I do love what I do. That's awesome. That, that's um, I, I love that. I'm actually listening to um, uh, Outliers at the moment, the book by Mike, Mike Malcolm Gladwell, and um, that's kind of like like what we like what we would often kind of break down like an accident, like why did this go wrong? And you just try and pull out all the context and the things that happen. He's kind of doing that on the flip at the moment. I'm not finished it yet. On the flip side, be like, why are people successful? Are they genuinely just like a one of a kind? So like people who are like phenomenal athletes and stuff like that, I'm starting to pulling it all apart. And yeah. it's fascinating to, um, to like really understand how, sometimes there is a little bit of luck uh, but then sometimes it's it's also about just just grabbing what's in front of you so um there was one thing who was saying like well not so much luck but like timing i suppose so he was so my daughter is a prime example she's born in uh august so when she comes to school age we can pick what school year she goes does she go in early and becomes the youngest of the year i think and then the second one and she's the oldest in the year so do we keep her back out for a bit and then she becomes the oldest of the year um and in that book malcolm's basically saying based off like the science of it always put them so they're the oldest of the year because right. if they put if they go in and they're the youngest of the year that they will always be behind they'll always be the youngest so they're less right. mature they're less cognitively able to to do things and they they basically always fall behind because you've been you've set them up behind um yeah. and it, and it was just amazing listening to all this stuff and some people who were born when like born it's the same thing, but in like sports. So if they were born so relative to like the selection period for the academies, they were older. It's not the fact that they're any better at the sport. They might just be bigger or stronger or as as a as a body, they're a bit more mature and so on. And I was just like, wow, that is fascinating. Um Isn't it? stuff like that. Yeah, me too. 
Absolutely. I can't get enough of it. I, I like eat it for breakfast. And yeah. I think, do you know, do you know when you love stuff that you do, it I mean it's true what they say, isn't it? It's not a job anymore. No. Uh, yeah. And I was again, I was talking to um someone who is I talking to? I was yesterday at the rugby and I was talking about like running a business and stuff. And I said, even as a kid, like I never knew what it would be. But I always knew I wanted to have my own business and I wanted to have like an empire and all of this stuff. Like I wanted to have a business. And um, and then, no, it wasn't at rugby. It was with my barber. And uh, I was sitting and talking to my barber about because he runs a business. And um, and he was saying, how, how are you getting on? And I was like, it's weird because it's so phenomenally stressful. Um, and it has genuinely had me at the most stressed I think I've ever felt in my entire life. But... I wouldn't not do it. Like I yeah. don't think I'd want the the little annoying stresses of working for someone else felt more to me. And mm. then the highs of the business is is so much higher than 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 the lows could ever get. So it's weird. It's kind of to your point. If you if you love what you're doing, um, then the stress is just a toler tolerable in a way. It's weird. Yeah, because I think you because you lean into the challenges of it. Yeah. Don't you? That, and I think, you know, talking about what you've just said about being employed, it's very often when the challenges hit when you're employed, people very often lean away from that because it's it's an external stress. Mm -hmm. But I think when when you love what you do or you're self-employed or, you know, and you've got that motivation, the challenges you lean into, because it's because it's it's so important for you to surmount those issues and, mm. and I face that throughout my career because you know I've always worked in heavy industries and um so very male dominated industries and what's happened is I found that because um I have to be careful what I say here really but because <laughs> um they're used to talking to one another blokey style yeah. um they have sometimes when they have feared the changes that I want to bring, yeah, their reaction is to get angry. And so first of all, they get angry with the content. This is rubbish. It's all mumbo jumbo and, you know, um, yeah. safety. Sh people should just do as they're told. That's it. If they just <laughs> yeah. told, that was it. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so, and and so when that didn't work and we were we were going forward, you know, and saying, no, these changes need to happen. You know, my job is to make it easy for those people who fear the change, because I understand. I understand why and what sits behind it. And it's my job to help them through their own particular process to get to the other side. But, you know, for the ones that are really fearful, they would go from, um sort of you know having um said the content's not good to actually escalating that to attacking me personally mm. you don't know what you're talking about who are you to come in and tell us what to do you don't know you know what it's like and all you know that that sort of stuff and they would start to discredit me too um i mean luckily like you said when you hit those challenges, when you're passionate about what you do, I never thought, oh, God, I can't do this or I can't help these people. I hit that challenge and thought this is going to be difficult. This is a difficult one. Mm. 
how do I get over this? Mm. And the, the amazing thing I think about the human brain is once you set yourself that question, how can I get over this? It, it's amazing, almost miraculous, that you start to find ways. Um, and I have been so lucky in being able to turn people around to a point where some of them still keep in touch with me today because what happens is I always find you you know the ones that are most challenging become your best advocates once they have changed because they've gone through the biggest journey yeah yeah if you can convince me then Jesus like it must be it must be good kind of thing exactly Yeah. yeah yeah Um, that that's fascinating. So when when you kind of came into the behavioural safety space, not only were you experiencing challenges of being female in a very male dominated space, but also trying to introduce concepts and a, and a I suppose a, a philosophy towards safety in which people really struggling against that as well. So yeah. you had you kind of like a, a salmon swimming upstream in a way, like. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's, it's fascinating. So, how how do you? Because I think it's interesting that the the challenges that you've just kind of touched on is is kind of oh, why don't people you know why don't people just do as they're told? We just let's follow the rules. Like, yeah. still, still don't like that's still a dominant conversation even now in twenty twenty two as well. Like, yeah, it, it's still this is it's still an issue. Like we haven't done it and rolled this out and, and it been like, yep, yeah, accepted. And this, so what, how, when you look back on like, well, the work you've done, the work that's come prior to you and so on, and, and all of the evolution before, I mean, now we've got, we've gone through like we've had behavioral based safety and then you've now you've got like human factors, human organizational performance, new view, whatever you want to call it, that, I don't know, cohort of, of new academia. And it's become very tribalistic as well. Um, It's how do you feel like the whole behavioral safety type of stuff has been rolled out? Do you look at it and gone, Oh, we did a good job there, but we still need to go. Or do you think "Mm, we could have done better? I, I always liken behavioral safety to Freud. Okay. Because, because prior to Freud, um, psychiatry and psychology wasn't in the public domain you know they were doctors away in hospitals and it was kept quiet in those days um freud brought um his doctrines into the public arena now even his own daughter eventually proved some of that doctrine wrong yeah but see what he did was he gave the mainstream a voice and an understanding that they'd never had before and I think behavioral safety is exactly that we needed something that said you know we've got all our systems and and procedures and policies and everything in place but people aren't following that so we must do something with people and that's where behavioral safety came in and you cannot fault it for what it did in terms of getting people thinking about those human factors Mm. So for that, I think it was really, um, it it was a good paradigm shift, Mm. except that it wasn't, the safety shift wasn't as big as we expected it to be. Um, And so, unfortunately, it didn't get the results that we thought that it would do. Um, And I'm not saying it didn't it didn't have some effect because absolutely it did. And, you know, some, some organizations have seen some really good results, but I don't think it was the silver bullet that everybody thought it would be. 
And the reason for that is because we were looking primarily at the behaviours of um, the people on the ground, the shop floor, if you like. Yeah. And, you know, that's the end of the, that's the end of the, the line. It's the last line of defence. And we were putting all of that pretty much on their shoulders. Mm. Because I think that up until probably maybe only 10 years ago, there was a notion that you didn't have to work with managers and leaders on this on the behavioral side of things. They knew that they would stick to the rules. They understood that um, safety was important. So the, the notion was that the issue must be on the shop floor side of things. Mm. And so that's where the focus was. Whereas in actual fact, over the years, people like me, and there, you know, there are a lot of people um, who rolled out behavioral safety who, you know, have evolved because that's what we do, isn't it? We we evolve as we gain knowledge. And, you know, I have spent hours gaining book knowledge, gaining um experience knowledge talking to people, doing studies and research. And I understand now the limitations of behavioural safety, but I didn't know that in the beginning. Oh. And this is the evolution of it. And, you know, you if, if you have a culture where it is, let's just say, it's still old school because heavy industries still have that, um, if it's still in that vein of, tell instruction they were even rolling out when you look back they were even rolling out behavioral safety programs by telling and instructing so what had changed really you know <laughs> and so now we know that actually the best way is to change the whole culture but do it through nudges and holistically you know cultures take usually generations to okay. shift and so what we should be doing is just keep on nudging people into that shift so that because what I would love when when I say to leaders, um, what's your vision for, you know, safety and you're, you know, you're doing a culture change program. What is your vision? And I get some really limp answers you know it's like <laughs> oh my goodness oh you know those off the shelf stock answers yeah. you know we we want to um we want to be world class in safety and stuff like that and i just think grief you know that's that's you know who because a vision is exactly that you have to be able to visualize it in detail mm. now for me what i think when i think about what do i want safety to be I think about and I you you know I, I do this a lot I refer back to my granddaughter because we're two generations apart so therefore that's a good indication because I think in two generations time mm. I want to uh, the, that generation to look back and go what you ha had to actually tell people to be safe they didn't want to do that mm. why on earth didn't they like just want to you know I want them to be so incredulous that we had to tell them because in that generation, they keep themselves safe without having to be told about it. Mm. 
And I liken this to telling my granddaughter that, that when I was her age, if I wanted to phone a friend, I had to go to the local village um, phone box, which was a red phone box outside the post office. And I had to put coins in <laughs> and phone my friend and make arrangements so quickly that the 2p that I put in before the pips went, because then you were off and she was laughing, you know, the, the how bizarre that is, because obviously she her phone glued to her ear at the moment and I just think yeah that's two generations apart and we could do this with safety mm. it's that <laughs> it just makes me think like the amount of stuff that my daughter is going to be like you are <laughs> like even now like with with like brothers-in-laws sisters-in-laws are just like don't understand the when you turn the internet on that horrible noise yeah. you used to get and they're yeah. like what you like <laughs> huh like yeah we didn't used to have internet in our hand 24 7 yeah. even then so yeah thinking back to being able to like i've I remember having like the one house phone that like you, you'd just be like, right, I need to ring my mates and be like, right, where are we going? Where are we meeting? And what time? Because I can't ring you when I'm there. Once I'm out, I'm out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and how, I don't know how my mum ever relaxed when I was out of the house and she just couldn't get hold of me. Like I used to go in the woods for like days. Yeah. Like, but the back of my house was just a massive field and woods. I used to live there. <laughs> and I'd be gone for a whole day, easy. And just like we 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 never used to like I remember one summer there was like a it was like a mains water pipe for the field or whatever to like, I don't know, keep the ground moist or water for the crops or whatever. Uh it had kind of come up and it had burst. So there was just like this natural pool of like tap water. Mm-hmm. Um so we just great. We didn't have to go home. We could get drinks from here as well. Um, yeah. So we literally just be gone on our bikes like all day. Like I can't imagine what that would be like. Um, yeah. So think I really about like what that. you've described, James. What you've just described again is that holistic paradigm shift from mm-hmm. one situation to another you wouldn't dream now of you know when your daughter's old enough letting her walk out the house without a phone um, and 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 that's and and that is exactly what I'm talking about in organizations when it comes to safety culture mm. is that nobody said nobody gave you um, a policy on you know how to treat your children um, how to raise your children and then put strategies in place and expect you to follow them to the letter this these are things that happen holistically as life progresses and that's the way we need to think about safety because unless we do that we aren't going to put things in the direction that we want them to be in mm. And, and, you know, with all due respect to behavioural safety programmes, you know, they've probably now been going about 30 years. And if we don't do something different, well, you get what you always got, don't you? You know, we yeah. know that. So this idea of baking in to everyday um, operations, these nudges, and what happens is what we want to do, because, because culture is based on experience, isn't it? And the collective experience at the moment still, as you alluded to right at the beginning, 
is that there is still a bit of a them and us situation. And I alluded to it as well, because, you know, managers were, um, there was this notion that managers just were safe, they knew, and didn't need to learn anything. And it was the front end that needed to change their behaviours. Well, actually, what we realise now is that leaders are the ones that need to change the experience of the workers. And it's that change in experience that will make them behave differently. Yeah, I love that. Because if we don't, if we only stick to behavioural safety and we don't do anything about the culture, that literally is like the tail wagging the dog, Mm. isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I love that. Do you think one of the problems you mentioned earlier about the the, the behavioural safety wasn't the silver bullet that we were after, Mm. do you think part of the problem is that we're looking for a silver bullet? Like when yeah. I think about any other form of science, like they they prove something and then 10 years later, they'll disprove themselves. Like yes. the job of academia and science is, yes. is to like come up with something and be like, this is the answer. And then five, 10, 20 years later being like, oh my God, we were so wrong. Like this yeah. is the answer. And then we, we it keeps going. And I, and I find that, it's interesting as a as a practitioner, which is what I would never call myself. I could I couldn't be an academic; it would drive me insane. <laughs> um, but like as a practitioner, who we try as much as we can as a company to be evidence based and used academia to influence and, and inform what we're doing. But with that, we have to understand that what we're doing now. Yes. Might be wrong next year, might be wrong tomorrow. Absolutely. You've got to have a growth mindset and yeah. a learning and a learning culture. And actually, if you look at um if you look at psychological safety, because everything that I do now, I don't just look at an organization and um where they're at in their cultural maturity and help them to build maturity, which I do through the Hudson Parker model, but also overlaid over that is everything that I, every intervention then is we have psychological safety baked in. And part of that is having that learning culture, that constant learning culture. Sorry. No, no, carry on, carry on. Sorry. No, it it has to, that has to be part of, um, it's almost like, it's almost like in work, people change their mindset um because i think outside of work like you said you know you you're treated differently you were treated differently than you will treat your daughter it it happens holistically outside of work but inside work it's as if we totally change mindset and instead of saying you know that's probably the easy because let's face it if you nudge and bake in improvements over time Okay, so that you're working towards where you want to be. It's so subtle that actually people are more accepting of it. Mm. You go to somebody and say, right, we need to change and we need to change today and we need to do this. Right. Now, here's the thing. And this is true of most people's minds. If you put yourself in the role of convincer, it naturally puts the other mind in the role of resistor yeah because we don't like change so if you hit somebody directly on and say right we've got to change which is exactly what we do in health and safety you automatically create a resistor Mm. yeah and and also you know like 
there's there's a natural defense in that like because we're all naturally quite proud of everything that we've done so if we're coming along as a safety professional saying my god we're terrible we need to change we need to do this it's like telling me that everything i've done for the last 20 years is not is substandard and not good enough absolutely and and we've done that for so for so long i find i find this is quite quite fascinating just like kind of sitting back and and watching it all like i would love to see what what I want to see like what my daughter's daughter or son is, what their perception of their own safety is, which you you touched on. And it reminded me a couple of things. Like if I'm talking to like my sister-in-law, for example, who goes to, she's a very curious person. Like she asks a lot of questions and, but she goes out loads as any young, young adult does, right? Festivals and stuff like that. But then in my job, literally for the last decade i've done nothing but study cat- catastrophic failures and disasters so i'm i'm, I'm years in in fire safety so groups of people mm. in building for me is just like anxiety inducing like this is such a bad idea um and if i say to them like you know okay cool you've, you've you're moving into student digs for example um, get the fire assessment off the landlord and i'll have a look for you yeah. <laughs> don't be stupid exactly. I, well, you're going to sleep there you're going to yeah. get drunk there you're yeah. you're going to live there mm. you don't want to know you don't want to know no but this is part of this is part of being um within a peer group isn't it and and actually this is this again it, it fits perfectly with with organizational safety culture because what happens is the rules are created um, by someone else, by the, the organization. And they are, they have to do that, first of all. Mm-hmm. You know, but are they doing it because they care or are they doing it because it's it's a legal requirement? Mm. And I and I I would say it's a legal requirement first and they care second. And what I'd like to see is that flipped. I care, therefore I do the legal. Do you see what I mean? It's a subtle yeah. difference. But, but what happens is peer groups will always have more influence over your behaviour than any external authority. Yeah. Because, because socially we need community. And if we if we step outside of that, then you know, primitively, our brains are wired to be in a community because if you step outside of it, you'll either get eaten by a predator or you might starve to death. So our DNA is wired to be societal. Yeah. And so peer staying within the peer group and not looking at for external authorities' approval means that the peer group will always have far more influence and that's the same in organizational safety culture as well yeah you know you've got to change the experience of the peer group because and i'm doing inverted commas here because they know the real yeah way things are not the said way things are and so authority is is kind of um the ideal and the peer group lives the reality Mm there's there's so much in that like um we we spoke about about this when we when we had our first chat um 
one of one of my favorite podcasts, which I haven't actually listened to for a while. Um, but one of my favorite podcasts to listen to is um, "You're Not So Smart" um, by an American, David McCraney, I think it's his name. And um, as you're talking, there's two there's two episodes of that which really stick out in my in my mind to kind of solidify that fact and just show the, the sheer power of our social communities. Yeah. Um, he had, um, he did a whole episode on, I can't remember the, it was like a cultist group, essentially. It was uh, the, the mass suicide in, in America oh, right. yeah. years, years back. Yeah. And um, he, he was in, introducing a theory of pluralistic, ignorance um yeah. which basically is, is is the easiest way that i could summarize it which david did in a podcast was um when you're in a classroom and the teacher says anyone not understand does anyone have any questions and you look around the room and nobody puts their hands up absolutely you think you're stupid but pluralistic ignorance says the majority of the people in the room are thinking exactly the same as you. And he uses this example. And there's a lady in the group, in the community that breaks that barrier. And she puts her hand up and says, like, are we sure we want to do this? Like, I mean, if you don't know about this event, it's horrific. There are women and children, families that just commit suicide for this ideology that that are about to get raided any second, um, which they never were. And um, long story short, she breaks this this like social barrier. She 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 sticks out, which is weird for us as, as humans. She doesn't yeah. conform. She yeah. breaks group think and all of those things that we that we yeah. know about. Um, but the entire group turned on her basically and shut her down. And yeah. she she passed away. She still did it. Um, and, she and really it's like horrific. She still committed yeah. suicide. And then there was a different podcast um, of a lady that did some. I think she was um, like a social scientist, so she was doing studies in America through COVID, and she coined the same, which I literally just cannot get out of my brain. Um, in that, social death is more influential than physical death so the fear of social death what they call it is more powerful than the fear of physical death so what she meant by that basically was that mid-covid you had kind of the main two political supporting parties so to speak so you had republican um societies and you had democratic societies now i might get the groups wrong but i believe it was the republicans that didn't support face coverings and the democrats did i might have that the wrong way around but um let's let's go with that for now they in a study they found that there was a lot of people in the republican community that wanted to wear face coverings they believed in face coverings but because their peer group said you're not a republican if you wear a face covering they didn't and that extended so far that they had like overt ways for you to get your vaccine and stuff like that because majority of their peer group didn't support vaccines but that person did so yeah. they're so scared of yeah. like, social death that yeah. they're willing to take risks of their own physical yeah. death or harm or whatever yeah. um, and she coined that saying and i just thought wow those two examples combined together is scary as to how powerful our peer groups are 
Here's a little simplified uh, example of how you could use computer vision to proactively kind of identify things in the workplace as kind of learning opportunities without that kind of bureaucratic, slow, drawn out process of reporting and then are they reporting and so on and so forth. Because really what computer vision is, is, is vision, right? It's like an extra pair of eyes. But it's not got someone sitting watching that CCTV all day going, meh. So here's a really simplified version of, of how you could use it from the white paper produced by Protex AI um, that's AI's role in promoting a proactive safety culture. Computer vision identifies packaging is often left by the en entrance to the store on Monday mornings. The safety team reviews the selected video clips of, with the workers. Um, key point there, with the workers. So the AI has gone, hmm, this always happens on a Monday. There's something there. So it's a specific thing. So if your safety walk is only on a Tuesday, you're never going to see this. So the AI has spotted it. That was my first observation of this simple, this simple kind of story or situation. So the safety team gets the workers in and we start to have a discussion. They explain that there are too many deliveries on a Monday morning to unpack and clear away at the same time. So the health and safety manager shows the computer vision evidence to the operations manager along with the feedback and so on from the teams. And then the deliveries are spread across three days, making it easier for them to uh, manage the packaging. So you can see as a really kind of simple way of how this can help not only is that computer vision that ai partnered with your cctv has kind of spotted up a trend oh, we've got a trend here we're really good on the other days but we're not on mondays hmm and that's something i think would be really easy for us to miss in a workplace because it's only at a specific time and a specific place so you've got to be in that specific place on that specific day at that specific time for you to spot that the likelihood of that is very low so the ai the computer vision has kind of done the work they needed to do spotted the trend pinged it up to you you're able to get the team in and go oh look at this this is what we're talking about on uh, on mondays this is happening what what's the sitch peeps and they're like oh well deliveries are just mad on mondays we cram them all in on monday it's like delivery day and it's just nuts we haven't got time to clean as you go boom learning opportunity just a very simple example of how having those extra set of eyes and you having the right attitude and approach to be able to use that as a learning opportunity can help you constantly, constantly approve, constantly learn, become a learning organization and start having that presence of positives. So you're just constantly doing stuff. I really like it and I really like this example um, to just really clearly and concisely go oh yeah i get how that works now um so i took that out of um protect ai's white paper that you can download the link is in the description it's called ai's role in promoting a proactive safety culture for me this is all about becoming a learning organization collecting that data having all of that tech help you spot trends so that you can take that and learn from it it's just increasing all of those constant learning opportunities so go to the link in the description below have a read it's an easy read there's some really cool little chunks in there there's loads of stuff that you can learn from this paper it's not overly academic or anything like that it's, it's a really simple easy read there's some good takeaways in there um, and i think there's some really good takeaways in there regardless of you take on computer vision or not so make sure use the link in the description below and read the white paper peeps 
And actually, you know, primitively again, we used to have, um, you had to have those people who did um, stand out from the crowd and, and yeah. want to do something different. They would be the people who would go and try that different berry and risk poisoning, or they would go and find a different camp where it was better sheltered, but they, they risked, you know, being killed or whatever. But in their DNA, they have this, um, this belief that for the greater good, so they're taking a risk for the greater good. And of course, the ones who were successful would then pass on their DNA to their ancestors. And so I'm always fascinated when I hear about people like that woman who stood up and said, this is wrong. So mm. she stood out from a peer group. My initial thought is, oh, I wonder if your ancestors were, you know, people who took risk. But you see, of course, in primitive times, if you took that risk and you were successful, then you were revered. Because mm. obviously you were you were you yeah. know creating a better society, and and somewhere down the line, I guess because of health and safety, we've now started to demonise people who take risks yeah. instead of challenge chal challenging their risk taking behaviour in a really positive way, mm. because actually if they would challenge the status quo of health and safety. But in a you know, but in a, a constructive way, actually, it improve. It would improve, mm. yeah. But instead, we try to quash people like that. Yeah, yeah, and that's why I love talking to um, safety professionals that are working in like in industries that really push the boundaries, like the creative sector, for example, like uh, Jennifer, um, who we've still not had on the podcast for not through lack of trying, if I remember rightly. Um, but um, the, uh, she was the head of safety at the where was she? National Theatre in London, yeah. and um, the amount of times and conversations I've had with her about this stuff, and and Ruth Denyer as well at ITV, like we just I remember Jennifer telling me the story like she had somebody walk into her office and said, right, we want to have a sword fight on a on like a castle edge with no no side to it, no edge protection. And then we want to hang someone. <laughs> cool. Let me know what okay. you come up with. And that's it, basically. And she was like, I hate to see. Yeah, she was like, how the hell can I yeah. someone without hanging someone? And and you look at the films and the, the creative sectors and the, the, the kind of theatres and stuff like that, and you just think, you know, if they can do that, why in a factory can you not go anywhere without doing X, for example, or having a permit to work? It's like, it's so interesting in these two different industries and how we, our relationship with safety. Absolutely. I think because, it, because I think in industry, it's about control, isn't it? Mm. Uh, do you know what? I, if we could go back, I think we would do things differently because I think, you know, again, I, I relate this back to having children is if you think about health and safety, the 1974 Act, when that came in and it was all in legalese and people didn't really didn't know how to apply it, they had to have, they then had to hire health and safety people to come in and interpret it into, you know, like an ACOP and a, and a workable document yeah. or workable documents, policies and procedures, etc. Now, of course, 
that to me is like that health and safety person then is like a parent to a toddler okay a toddler doesn't know has no experience of life and therefore needs a parent to tell it what to do right and that was exactly what the what organizations and the workforce were like when health and safety was in its infancy but of course as a toddler grows and they bump their head a few times and, you know, they, they learn um, to keep themselves safer, then the parent doesn't have to then keep telling them, you know, so they don't have to keep telling them what to do. And, and eventually the idea being that that toddler grows up and then takes responsibility for itself. Yeah. The parent doesn't have to say, look both ways when you cross the road and, you, you know, all of those things. They do it for themselves as an adult because they've learned through the years and gained the experience to be independent. Now, if you go back to health and safety in its infancy, where we had to have people telling us what to do, just like a parent with a toddler, instead of you know, over the years, we've had health and safety baked into trade training. We have health and safety, um, all, all sorts of, of training and standards. And it's it's it literally is directly taught and baked into everything that we do in our working life. Mm. So now, if you if you think that you know the the workforce no longer need to be told exactly what to do in health and safety because they've like if you like they've matured they've come to adulthood and can do it for themselves they know now and yet it's like the parent that won't let go of the control Mm. we're still trying to parent health and safety and what happens when you parent an adult child at some point they go go away I'm an adult. I can do it for myself, you know? And really, I think we get a lot of that. Yeah, like that. That's When you started talking, I was like, where is this going? <laughs> I couldn't get it at first, like you were saying. But now, yeah, like that makes so much sense. Like we, we have as a profession for a long time taking it from god we used to send kids under machines because they were small and they could get like what will keep it clean clean it whilst it was operating and stuff and now that stuff doesn't happen as in most cases and businesses have got a maturity or a level of understanding and of what is kind of acceptable or not and we just become this overbearing controlling parent that's just yeah. like we need to do more more of that stuff instead yeah. of i suppose then the, the question would be like should the profession then of like are we are we have we not evolved ourselves then we're still being this overbearing parent like do we need to really evolve the way that we're we see ourselves i suppose yeah. Um, I, I mean, I do think there is there is definitely a shift from that sort of um, police policing and enforcing mentality. I genuinely think that that's that is moving on and, and we're, we're all quite a way down the line with that. But I do think there's a general fear um, within organisations. I think there are two fears within organisations. The first fear is litigation and the second fear is you know the moral 
duty to not hurt somebody. Mm. Um, and those two fears are what stops them organizations from wanting to let go of that control. Mm. It, because if they do, they're in serious trouble, and quite rightly. So it's how, do, uh, let me explain uh, what I did once um, in a leadership um, meeting. I was reading Maslow, as you do, and um, and I came across a quote from him, and I thought, I love that. And it said, he who is good with a hammer sees everything as a nail. Yeah. And my instant thought was, that's health and safety. That's exactly describing health and safety. So what I did, I said to my husband, have you got a piece of wood and a nail, a bolt and a screw? And he went to the shed and, and he put in this block of wood, a nail, a bolt and a screw. And I took them into work. And I said to them in this meeting, if we only treat health and safety in one way, we have a five pound hammer and we can hit the nail and it will work. But if you think that different people and different disciplines need a different way of being managed. So health and safety isn't one thing. There are fractions of it that need dealing with differently. This five pound hammer will not make a difference to the bolt or the screw. And so what we're doing is we're only making a small amount of difference and only in the area that we kind of know we can. Mm. So what do we do? Well, I tell you what we do, and I get out a lump hammer, and I hit the nail, and I say, and I hit the bolt, and I hit the screw, and I say, well, we'll just hit them with a bigger hammer because it's all we've got. But, of course, what that does is it doesn't make the bolt and the screw perform mm. any better, does it? What it does eventually is it undermines the material and breaks it. Mm. And actually... Health and safety is broken to a great extent mm. because we're not managing it in the right way. However, and this is where the control comes in. If I said, let's take the lump hammer away, there would be panic because right now it's the only tool we've got. It's the only way that we can at least have the illusion of control. Wow. So what we've got to do is we've now got to teach leaders how to use a spanner and a screwdriver as well as the hammer and teach them when it's appropriate to use them so that every every part of health and safety gets to perform in the way that it should I love that I'm, I'm desperately trying to find a quote so i get it right um <laughs> because it reminded me and I've, I've mentioned this quite a few times now um it was in a show uh, on Netflix, a new one called Sandman. Um, let me find it. Here we go. Morning, Lucifer Morningstar. <clears throat> Tools are the subtlest of traps. Go away, cookies. Tools are the subtlest of traps. We become reliant upon them. And in their absence, we are vulnerable, weak, and defenseless. And I heard that and I paused it, rewound it, played it again, typed it, emailed it to myself. And it's like we've become so reliant on one particular tool that when we realize or we have to accept ourselves that that tool isn't working or that tool isn't the right tool for this situation, we're yeah. like, oh, oh my God. Yeah. And and I feel like that's the same in, in very much in safety and that we've gone, yeah. we, we've, 
we seem to want to pick one tool like this, all this debating around, are we traditional safety? Are we new safety? Are we behavioral safety? It's like, well, I go into one company and like, I look at a set of hot principles and I'll be like, this is not going to work here. Like yeah. you just need to focus on that. Let's, let's go all the way back to the basics of 1974. Let's focus there and we'll build up. Yeah. You go into somebody and be like, oh my God, you guys have got this. You're talking the same language as this. And let, let's go with this. Like I said on the podcast for so many times, like you wouldn't go to a buffet and just eat the sausage rolls, would you? No. You go to the buffet and you'd have loads of bits and you might try yeah. something new and be like, oh my God, this is rank. No, don't want to eat that again. So you're not going to get any more of that. But the other thing you try, these nice chicken goujons, you never had chicken goujons before. You try that and you go, oh, they're nice. Have a few more of them. Well, what that tastes like in, with a bit of bread and some sweet chili sauce. And then all of a sudden, you've just made yourself a new sandwich. It, that's a terrible analogy, but like, <laughs> I'm a food. No, I like yeah. analogies, as you can tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're obviously a, a family focused analogist, and I'm a food focused. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I get it, though. I totally get it. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know there's an irony here as well? Because, um, you know, we talk about control and when managers have been saying through behavioral safety um you know we want to now start to control your behavior that's that's been acceptable that's been palatable but actually now what we're saying is in order to change their behavior they have to have different experiences so let's turn that tide on you um, and now we've got to say the leaders need to make those changes and, and actually learn how to lead people. Um, and, you know, because a lot of time, I think, particularly in heavy industry, um, certainly my experiences, people get promoted because they're technically good, but they very rarely get um, leadership skills, people skills, Um until they're actually quite high up in in the on the ladder, mm. and, and of course for me, the you know it's it's important even from a supervisor to start looking at having people skills. Now, obviously, it's very difficult to expect um, leaders within let's just say construction to you know you you're gonna I want you to be technically good I want you to run projects uh, but by the same token you be a psychologist as well I mean clearly that's not going to happen but for me for this change to really take effect the focus now has to be off the workforce and if managers have said in the past if leaders have said in the past we need to change your behaviors then they're going to have to suck it up and say, okay, we're going to have to be prepared to change us too. And I think that's a lot harder for them to swallow. Yeah. Yeah. And and you've, you've, it's interesting. You've used the word like control quite a lot. I think earlier you said the illusion of control, which I, which yeah. I really liked. Um, do you think one of the issues, and I'm conscious of time, I want to make sure we get into in a minute, talk about what you're doing now, because I think that's really interesting as well. Um, but it's a shame because this has been a really good conversation. I could probably continue this <laughs> if we had a bottle of wine or some beer. Yeah. We'd be here for a long Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Um, but um, but yeah. So I, I find it really interesting. This like use of the word control. Like if we look at say a, a simple a simple thing that we could all understand in safety, a risk assessment. And in a risk assessment, we look at the hazards and we come up with control measures i've always found that phrase difficult i have in that 
I don't feel like we need to be controlling the workforce, which is what we have done for many times. And in some environments, say like manufacturing, that's probably quite easy to really have a sense of control because you're in a controlled environment. We're in a room, we're in a building, the machine's right in front of us. So my background was, my original background was manufacturing. So that sense of control measures worked really well and I got it and it understood. And when I went into more dynamic environments like the NHS or like construction, Construction, where we've got people out on the road and different sites and stuff. I'm like, oh, we've got no control now. And, and when I kind of work with customers at the moment, I like to use things like kind of similar to what you're saying about their experiences. What actually what we're trying to do is enable the workforce and influence the workforce using nudges and stuff like that to make the, the decisions that are aligned with the decisions that we want them to make because yeah. we don't have control actually we, we have don't. a full sense of control or right. illusion of control is what you've said yeah. think, do you do you align with that or or do you totally um one of the one of the analogies that i use on a regular basis is about um you know as a health and safety professional i um do my best not to speed i say do my best because we all you know drift off into a bit of a daydream if we're driving a long time or whatever um but i do my best not to speed a conscious effort i make Mm. because i think you know if i'm telling other people to follow safety rules then i should be seen to be doing exactly that so um that's on a daily basis and while ever my my, in my head my priority is my professional integrity then I will stick to that now listen to what I said my professional integrity so in other words this is personal to me this isn't somebody telling me what to do and I think this is one of the things that we miss in health and safety is if you tell somebody what to do, I mean, I've said this earlier, you, you create a resistor. What we need to do is instill pride in doing things in a certain in a certain way that make you feel good about you. Yeah. It, it aligns with your personal values. So that's the first thing. However, if I had my granddaughter with me and she needed urgent medical attention, I would definitely 100% put my foot down and get her to the hospital as quickly as I possibly could. And I would speed mm-hmm. because in that moment, my professional integrity takes a backseat to my personal feelings for my granddaughter. My value just changed, didn't it? From me to her. And so this is the problem, I think, with um, trying to control behaviours is because you have no idea what will trigger a change in somebody away from their professional integrity. So you can't control people. However, what you can do is create an environment that makes it more difficult so if I lived in a society, like if I said to people, you know, oh, I had to speed, I had to break the speed limit. I've gone through a speed camera. I know I'm going to get a fine, but I had to get my granddaughter to the hospital. Nobody in society would go, mm, you shouldn't have done that. Yeah. You see, socially acceptable to speed and therefore I'm happy to do it and tell people I've done it. Whereas if we lived in a society where, you know, since cars were invented, nobody ever broke the speed limit. It was like a social, you become a social pariah if you ever did that, right? Now, when my granddaughter's in the back of the car and needs urgent medical attention, 
my brain would be in an entirely different place. Yeah. It would be, I am going to push this as much as I can, but I'm not going to speed. I'll go right to the limit, but I'm not going to go over. Because this is this this is what happens when you know we we have these societal rules. It's like if you if you take someone to a football match and they shout profanities at a referee on a Saturday morning, but then you take the same person to a church or a synagogue or a temple, whatever, on a Sunday morning or whenever that is, they will naturally quieten down. Mm. Nobody stands at that door saying, now, how am I supposed to behave here? Mm. Behaviours change depending on what's expected and what's societally acceptable. You know, and so we can only control the environment people are in, but we cannot control their behavior. Does mm. that make sense? So yeah. for us, when we're when we're looking for um, culture change, we want to create an environment where people make the right choices. Yeah. And that's that's really as much as you, you can do, because people's behaviors make sense to them in the moment. In fact, I tell you, I, I was going down the motorway uh, a few years ago and I was doing the speed limit. I was doing 70 mile an hour and this car passed me. And um, and as they went past, uh, there was mum and dad in the front, I assume, with seatbelts on and two children in the back. And I would have said that they were probably around sort of four and seven years old, these children, no seatbelts, just bouncing around in the back. And I was incensed. Because parents in the front had got seatbelts on, right? And and I all the way home, I was thinking, how could I have stopped? How could I have stopped them? You know, what could I have done? Should I have like gone in front of them and slowed right down with my hazards on or something? You know, what could I have done for those children? Because because it just bothered me mm. for the next hour traveling home. It was only when I got home and I thought, you know what? That's exactly this is exactly the the point I'm making here. In society, having two children in the back of the car was intolerable. The fact that they weren't past me and I was doing 70 mile an hour, so they were speeding, they didn't touch the sides mm. because it's socially acceptable. And we've got to get, we have to get organisations understanding that what whenever they let a standard slip in any way, shape or form, they are now creating a society that accepts the lower standard. Mm. And I think that, you know, very often I, I, I sort of think about organizations as pyramids and there is like, there's three to four layers. And at the top layer, they must be able to create a vision that people can actually visualize. What will people be doing, thinking and feeling in the next two generations that is different to today? If they can convey that, the next layer down they create the strategy mm. okay so they then start to bring that strategy you know that into the paperwork into they blend that in so that that's the paperwork starts to enable the system start to enable that vision to come alive the next layer down is the frontline leaders mm. now they have to bring those strategies to life mm. and once they bring them to life in putting people to work can you imagine if that was so solid from vision to, to systems to people leadership was so aligned that it was unshakable and unmistakable? 
The experiences of frontline workers would mean that they would only work to that alignment. Mm. The problem we have is that along that chain, that that, um, vertical chain, we have different standards, different people doing different things. They're not aligned to any one thing. And it's that, and you know, inconsistency kills culture. Yeah, and I, it's it's a fascinating this is because I, I I think there's a couple of things here that's really interesting. One one really nice observation I picked up uh, through this conversation is that for those of us in the practitioner space that might have been a bit sucked in by the whole tribalism, behavioural safety is the old way, and now we do pop safety or nuvi or whatever resilience or whatever you are saying literally the exact same stuff that the new view or hop community said we, we are talking the same language 100 yeah. percent. so like that's one just a little observation which i really love here um but but an interesting like kind of story to back up kind of what you were saying in the conversation with a customer not so long ago um where they, they really didn't understand uh, that the, they felt and it kind of comes back actually to what you were saying earlier about care, like do leaders care or are they compliant? Which one is it? Is it chicken and egg and uh, or, or whatever? But I find, I find it really interesting if we combine that to a couple of things. And then Jill Koenig's been, I don't know if you've seen any of Jill's work. She's phenomenal. She does uh, a lot of like high reliability human performance work, but in fire safety now. Um, yeah. She lived in Grenfell. Um, uh, lived in a tower across the road, basically from Grenfell, and watched it happen. So she's got this deep emotional connection to Grenfell. She's got the knowledge, the skills, and the experience of like high reliability industries and human factors, human performance. And and I'm in in a horrible way. And I said this to Jill as well, like in a horrible way. Like I'm kind of happy that you had an emotional connection to that building because we need someone like you with the passion to yeah. drive. Um, but anyway, there's something that she said was around compliance isn't guarantee of safety um, that she's kind of pulled out from her work. And I think one of the problems is, is our experience with safety is that we've we've built this world in that we think if we're ticking the box, we're safe. Mm-hmm. So I had to, uh, coming back to the, the the point was this had this interaction with the with the customer where they're they're saying you know the right things we take safety seriously safety's first you know we've got all these rules in place these life saving rules like what should we be be saying and so well you've got these life saving rules for example but but you're also creating an environment in which people can't follow those rules. Yeah. Now your interaction, that experience, my interaction with safety is that it has no connection to my real working world. And yeah. that you as a company are saying safety first, but your decisions are pushing production first or construction first or whatever it is, right? So you're kind of, I said interactions and you're saying experience, like it's just different words, but the same thing. And um all of these experiences, they have these subtle communication type. Are we being, to come to your point, being consistent with our message, but also are our decisions and our behaviors as leaders enabling people to be consistent with that message as well? Like, I'm not a fan of saying safety first. I don't think it works as a company because I don't think you can be 
safety all the time. I don't think, you know, I wouldn't want the accountant putting safety first. I want, the, I want my accountant putting money first, 100%, right? Yeah. If, my, if my accountant was like, sorry, I screwed that up. I was doing my DSE assessments. <laughs> um, so it, it yes, it's about, I think, getting the right message. But whatever your message is, just be consistent with it. And your behaviors and your decisions enforce it. And they work for it. And they enable people to be consistent with your message. I think yeah. that's how like, I've kind of experienced exactly what you were saying, which I, I love. I think we're, we're singing off the same hymn sheet here. I think it's great. There was an interesting one thing I, I did want to touch on before we kind of just quickly move into um, the work you, you're doing. Um, you mentioned psychological safety, and I, I absolutely love Amy's work and all the people that have come from you know, off the back of Amy's work. And I, yeah. Just, I just think it's phenomenal. Um, and I think it's probably one of the most important tools for a workplace, particularly with safety as well. But for me, any any organization that wants to learn and improve, I think psychological safety is really, really important. But um, I had this thing in my head about like, why, why, why is it really difficult in safety to get leaders to make kind of risk-based decisions based off the severity of a potential thing that may or may not happen. And that's really hard. That's kind of what we're trying to do in safety is to say, well, we shouldn't do this because if it goes wrong, it's going to be really bad. And then you're kind of fighting with, yeah, but it's an if, like it might not go wrong. So then the conversation of likelihood comes in and likelihood normally overpowers the decision. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've had a, difficulty with this for ages and 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 spoke with about this with a lot of people but read loads of academia watched loads of stuff about psychological safety i've never read amy's bloody book uh fearless organization and someone mentioned it the other day and i was like you know what i've got it i need to bloody read it so i've started reading it yeah. and she says something in there she said that she stumbled across this um this uh theory from psychology that said discounting the future so it's easier to discount something that may happen in the future for what's happening right now. Correct. So you you give an example of speeding to get your granddaughter to hospital. What's happening right now is something that my daughter, my granddaughter needs to get to hospital. Sure. What the future is, it may mean I get caught or it may mean that somebody doesn't agree with me. It's very easy for me to discount that future for the decision right now. Yes. And I think that is a huge challenge for us in safety. We're talking about having a risk-based decision based off something that actually might not happen. Yes. And because it might not happen, it's very hard for us to say, look, it was the right decision. Was it the right decision or was it never going to happen? Like you, you, it's just it's impossible to know really, isn't it? So I think a lot of the time we discount the future in a lot yeah. of what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And and it, it is because we've we've always used lagging indicators, haven't we? We're always looking for leading indicators for um for safety because let's face it, we want to know what we've stopped from happening. Yeah. Um, and not after the event. Yeah. But yeah. you know, I do think that look I think human beings want to be safe it's you know it's it's our biggest instinct is for survival Mm. and one of the things one of the things I I would love to see is like in this future vision 
is that people look out for each other and quite and do it graciously you know Um, I was again it's like a different mentality when you walk into work it's as if you're it's as if you switch part of your brain off that is to do with safety and and it's almost again I think it's because what we tend to do is if you were driving in your car with your wife and she said to you James, you're driving too close. When you overtake, you're way too close to the car. You need to get over from the car that you're you're overtaking. It, you know, it, it's dangerous. And then you come to a traffic lights, and she says, "Do you know what?" And you break him way too quickly. You need to start slowing down before you know. Sooner or later, she told me. <laughs> Sooner or later, you're going to either say if you're a very brave man um shut up i've got past my test i don't need you telling me how to drive or if you're not a brave man you'd at least think it right here's why because when somebody criticizes us we respond to the criticism not the content of the criticism does that make sense yeah a lot of sense so what we do is we say um we're, we get defensive against the criticism, shut up or you'll I'll pull over and you'll get out and walk, you know. What we don't do in that moment is think, well, am I? Mm. Am I too close? Am I breaking too hard? Because what we do is when we're criticised, we reject everything. Mm. And this is a problem in health and safety, isn't it? Because... Generally speaking, because we are lagging, we only tell people when they're doing something wrong. Mm. And so, therefore, we are criticised. And therefore, instead of, you know, the person who's been corrected thinking, have they got a point? What they're doing is going, go away. I don't want you here. I don't want to listen to what you're saying. They reject everything Mm. because of the way it's delivered. that's what happens in work you take that same person outside of work and in a different context and they would act differently if they if I saw a child about to run into a busy road I would automatically without even thinking put my hand out and stop them Mm. yeah you go into work and we don't like to criticize each other because managers do that Mm. the peers don't do it for each other that's what managers do. So instead of seeing somebody working unsafely and approaching them like you would a stranger's child, you would stop a child or a person from hurting themselves in the street. You come into work and because criticism is done by managers, you don't look out for each other because you don't want to add any extra criticism within the peer group. Yeah. And these are the things that when we look at the future, two generations down the line, those are the things we want. That's the vision. How do we get from that state now to people actually looking out for each other as they would outside of work? Which is one of the reasons why I think psychological safety is such an important factor. I think a lot of the time we think that psychological safety is just a group of people that are like, 
oh, you're okay. Like it's 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 not like a psychologically safe environment is like loads of like critical conversations. I don't agree with that. Here's why I don't agree with that. I'm comfortable for you to say I don't agree with that and vice versa. Why? Because we all know we're trying to achieve the same thing. So actually psychological safety on the shop floor is feeling comfortable to say, well, 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 hang on a second. I think we should probably do it this way. Far from being soft, it's brave. Yeah, yeah. Because you you have to be vulnerable, don't you? Mm. In order to put your stick your neck out, and I mean, I do it. I'll be honest with you. I had um, I had my car um raised, you know, upon a, a ramp because they wanted to look at my exhaust, and the the young lad who was um the looking at the exhaust went under my car and looked up, and I said to him, "Can you just come out from under the car a minute?" And I said to him, you know what? I don't know if anybody's ever told you this, but you have got amazing eyes. And he, co- he co- of course, he coloured up a little bit, but I wanted the emotion in him. I did it deliberately. And I said, has anybody told you you've got gorgeous eyes? And he said, well, yeah, yeah, sometimes, you know. I said, have you ever seen anybody when they lose an eye? Do you, know, do you see what happens? And he said, well, yeah, sometimes it can go cloudy and it sinks. But I could see the look on his face. He's like, why is this woman talking to me like this? I said, okay, so when you walk back under my car, what could happen? And he went, ah, oh. the penny dropped. He knew I was telling him this and he, he went off and he got his safety glasses. So, you know, I am the sort of person brave enough, vulnerable enough to be able to go out and do that in the world because I've got the a most a massive conscience. And if I didn't and he hurt himself, I would, it would be on me for not saying something. And I want people to be in the workplace and feel like, you know, it is a vulnerability because you do run the risk. I could have run the risk in that situation of him telling me it's none of my business, Mm. you know? So I had to be vulnerable in the first place. And then the other person has to be vulnerable too, because it's hard not to get defensive when you've been caught doing something wrong. And so you have to show some vulnerability in being able to say fair cop. Yeah. You know? And that's what psychological safety is about. Mm. Love that. Love that. I also feel like he probably just ma- massively disappointed that you weren't actually hitting on him. <laughs> uh, he's, he's like, hey, hey, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was young enough to be my son. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if he thought that, happy days <laughs> <laughs> so george everything that you're kind of talking about it's very easy to assume that you must be a safety professional a consultant out on the road helping businesses do this but you work for a tech company i know which is know. Really strange so talk to me about talk to me about that like what the bloody hell are you doing at a tech company on <laughs> <laughs> honestly i feel so very lucky to be working for this company because you can only imagine that you know over the years i have literally sort of worked my way through observing cultures and leadership styles and the cause and effect of all of you know all of this happening and, and the behaviors that are created. And it's and I, I constantly see this mismatch between what managers want and then how they deliver that doesn't get them the behaviors that mm. they want. And so my life's work really is around how can I help leaders 
to, you know, not have to be psychologists, but to get how, you know, to lead people into the behaviours that they want Mm. so that the organisational culture, that environment we talked about earlier, makes or enables people to make the right choices. And, um, And so I saw this job with Tendered and they wanted a behavioural scientist to come along and help them to inform how their hardware products were um, user-friendly and would use nudges and and all of those psychological things that holistically help people to make the right choice. Um, And I think it's absolutely amazing because, you know, when all's said and done, human beings are fallible and they make mistakes. And you're not you cannot make people into robots you cannot give people a set of instructions and say every day that you walk into this this work space you must only follow these rules because people don't work like that and we've already said behaviors change on a sixpence Mm -hmm. so um i i realized that actually i could perhaps involve myself in the technology so that we could start to fill the gaps. So instead of trying to change people, can technology actually fill those gaps where people fall down? Mm. And that really appealed to me because at the end of the day, you know, I'm almost at retirement age and I want this, I want my knowledge to mean something in the health and safety space. I want to leave a legacy of this understanding i'm sure a lot of people feel like this as well who you know who do the same sort of job you want to make a difference i want to i want to be instrumental in making that paradigm shift that we've been talking about two generations down the line we want them to be thinking entirely differently what can i do and of course new generations come along and technology is just part of their life isn't it you know And so it's it's not the big scary beast that it's to me, if I'm being honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and and so it sh- it should be part and parcel. And of course, it's already happening, isn't it? You've got people like Hyundai who um, have a, a sensor on a windscreen, so that if the driver's eyes drop for a certain amount of time, it alerts them and says you're feeling tired. Or if their eyes go off to the left or the right for any length of time, it says you're being distracted. And so, you know, technology is being used to help fill that gap where people do fail. Yeah. And I love that. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, And so I was really quite excited to get involved in, um, at the time that I joined, they were doing a lot of um, minimum social distancing hardware because we were during lockdown. Um, and now we're doing um, geofencing and it's like a, a wearable device that is a tap on the shoulder. Um, and and this, the studies that I'm doing at the minute is if we create, um, it's obviously it's an invisible boundary. It's a geofence that is done in an office somewhere else. But the device that the wearer has on site just alerts them when they reach and cross that boundary so it's a tap on the shoulder when they lose um spatial awareness but what i'm looking for is does it also create in their mind's eye a boundary Mm. you know 
It's a bit like it's a bit like if you um if you play games with the children, you say, imagine there's a line down the middle of the room and you can't cross this way and you can't cross this way. In their mind's eye, they know where that boundary is. And I want to know whether our technology does that as well. So really doing lots of research into um how we can bake psychology into this hardware. Um, but whilst I was, when I first started, I started t- telling the CEO, Leo, um, about what the next sort of, th- what we needed to do in terms of a paradigm shift in culture and how we couldn't expect leaders to be um, psychologists. And so we got to find some way of helping them, nudge them into their right mind thinking so that they could get the behaviours that they wanted. And being the genius that he is, he said to me, ooh, that sounds really interesting, let's do it. Mm -hmm. And so um, we've created a software platform that it does so many things that really excite me because, um, first of all, whenever I say to a leader, um, what's your safety management system like, they can tell me, a good amount they've in their mind's eye they know what it does they know what it's for and they could probably tell me some of the policies and procedures if not all when i say to leaders on what's your safety culture like well then you know you get that blank look of oh <laughs> now what do i say put on the spot and and it's not surprising because you know it's not something um it's not part of their expertise mm-hmm. um so What I wanted to be able to do, one of the first things I said was, I want to be able to show leaders what their safety culture looks like, because they don't know. I want them to be able to read it in the same way as they read their safety management systems and their statistics and all of the stuff that comes um, from, you know, sort of general health and safety. And then what I want to be able to do is tell them where they're at. And what we're finding with clients is that generally speaking their safety management systems are really mature because they've been doing it for a long time they've reviewed them they've assured them and all of that sort of stuff so they're really um robust whereas their safety culture is really low and of course when we get to talking to clients then they're telling us well we you know we put this in place and we put that in place and people still don't do what we expect them to do um and uh you know one of the one of the biggest things is but you know every organization says to their workforce you can stop a job if um if you think yeah. it's safe without fear of approach yeah and of course what they have just done is they have given permission to the workforce okay but of course nobody stops the job mm-hmm. so what management do then is they reassure so they're given permission now they're going to reassure we promise that there'll be no repercussions if you do this and still nobody reports or stops a job. So leaders then go, okay, we're scratching our heads now. We have no idea how we get people to behave the way we want them to. So in a way, that's that's sort of a, an example of what, what we do is we look at what the cultural issues are we look at the reality of the culture and what the behavioral drivers are, the leadership drivers are, 
and then we put suggestions in place so we have um, learning suggestions that are micro learning and there's loads of psychology just baked in so we don't have to we don't have to teach leaders how to be psychologists what we do is we give them little experiments little um experiential activities to do because we learn through experience even when things go wrong we learn something mm. and so for me this is this is the crux if you've got if you've got let's just say 10 leaders in an organization and you did an overall survey a culture survey chances are let's just say if 80% of those leaders weren't that good at safety communication they would all be sent on a safety communication course which meant 20% didn't need to be there the other thing is that um you know and, and I'm a qualified teacher so I hate saying this but you know training actually the way that we we do training traditionally it triggers the forget curve mm. because we only retain so much 20% generally speaking and when we come back, if we don't use it straight away, we default back. And if we use it straight away, but it doesn't give us the results we expect straight away, then we default back. So it's it's not an, a really good um, investment. And how many people, how many organizations go back to those leaders six months down the line and say, how, how has that learning impacted the way you lead? Mm. you know it's very rarely monitored it's just assumed that you've learned something you'll apply it and you'll be better for it which of course isn't the case so we do micro learning there 10 minute modules and um and they are specific to the leader of a team so if you've got 10 different leaders they could all be working on something different depending on what their team has identified is an issue what that means is that they're only learning what's relevant to them and their teams that's the first thing so do they put in the they put in the the symptom essentially like people are not reporting near misses do, does the team put that into the device or the software yeah so we do they do they do surveys so yeah. we do a survey they interrogate it down to the team level and then whatever level of maturity that they are identified at for over six different categories they then are recommended to go to, I mean, they're recommended to go to one suggestion, but actually if they think that won't work with them or their team, if it's not their way, they have others to select from. Mm -hmm. um, and at the end of each of the, so for example, if, if like I just said, if it's communication, it may be that um, leaders are you know, not communicating safety very well. So, the learning will be not just like if you go on a traditional course, they'll tell you things like um, seven percent of um, words. We only put some uh, importance on seven percent of words and thirty five percent on, um, you know, body language and 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 fifty percent on um, sorry and fifty percent on body language and tone and all of that. That it, but it, what does that mean to somebody when they go back to the office? It's kind of, it's nice to know, but, but what does it mean when they're actually conversing with people? So what we do instead is we tell them how communication affects people who are listening. So it's more psychological, mm. but it's only 10 minutes. So it's not too much. And it's, it's always done in lay people's terms. I always try and layer up. So 
for those people who like the psychology, I put the big words in, um, but I also then explain what that means in real life. So people who prefer to do it, con- you know, to learn contextually, I'll give them an, a real life example. Um, and then I'll even say, and this is the right way to do it. So, so for those who do want instruction, they get it. So if you like, what I've done there is I've I've pacified the bolt, the nail and the screw um, in, in terms of the... Uh, the learning and then at the end of it we'll give them an experiment to do but it's an experiential one so in that instance we might say go out and deliberately miscommunicate but this time observe your team how many of them come to you directly for clarification how many of them talk to each other to see whether they can figure it out between themselves how many sit there and struggle Because once you know that as a leader, you've done two things. See, this is why it's baked in. Because as a leader, you should be observing your team. So that's a skill that we're encouraging. And the second thing is, they now know how miscommunication affects their team. And therefore, they know they can't do it anymore because they've experienced it. You can't, you can't, I think, I can't remember who said this, but you can't unexperience an educated mind. Mm. And, and so once they've had that experience, we tell them then go and, and communicate properly in, the, you know, in a full, full way content and, and context and, um, and then tell your group what you did and get them talking and open discussion about how they felt when they were miscommunicated and how easy or difficult was it to get that clarity, you know? Because these are all leadership skills. Now you don't, this is what I mean, you don't have to be, we're not teaching them to be psychologists, we're teaching them to be leaders. Mm. And these little bite-sized pieces that help people understand the impact that they have as a leader on their teams. So if I've got a, essentially, if if they, they you do that survey and it pulls out some things that, you might be struggling with, we think you're struggling with this and this and this. It basically just gradually gives you these micro learnings, micro experiments to go away. And it's kind of like, it feels like kind of having a coach to hand, isn't it? Like Absolutely. Yeah. And the good, you're absolutely right. Because the other thing we do is we then do small pulse surveys um, at a cadence that the client wants. But obviously some, some experiments are like that one's very quick, but some are, you know, um, more, the longer term Mm. we do pull surveys and what we're doing is we're checking in to make sure that the action that's been taken is actually impacting and working as i said don't do that normally in traditional training but these pull surveys they help then to track that that it is actually having a positive impact and if it isn't then that triggers an email directly to me and my team and we get involved to support that leader so you're absolutely right it is like having um a coach in in sort of any given situation where whereby you can do the learning and if it works that's great and if you can't then you know i don't want we don't want anybody to fail in this it's it's such an important thing that leaders change the way that they lead so that the behaviors and the environment is conducive to safety Mm. so we can't let anybody fail it's too important 
And actually, if you think about it, there will be, you know, I, I talked earlier on about those leaders who don't want to change. It will highlight those leaders. Mm. The ones that aren't actually doing the activities and making the difference, it will highlight those leaders. Now, that isn't to, um, you know, to sort of punish them or, you know, the, there should be no punitive consequences to that. All that is doing is saying these leaders are the ones that are not supporting the culture you want and therefore need the most support. Mm. Because, you know, I said earlier, didn't I, that that horizontal, that, sorry, that vertical alignment is important. Yeah. will highlight the ones that aren't aligned. And, and, I, and I think as well, we need to get comfortable with the notion that like some people are not for your company and you're not for them. It's okay. like, it's just, yeah. This, this is the, like if we can if we can be a bit more psychologically safe, so to speak, as an organization and not be afraid to say what we are, what defines us as an organization and accept that some people won't like that. Absolutely. Like, this is what you are like. Primark is very clear. We do cheap clothes and everybody knows that you're going to get some Primark jeans and six, six months later, you're going to be going back and getting some more. Some more Primark jeans. Yeah. They know that. That's what they like, clearly communicate. And they accept that some people don't want that and would rather spend, you know, £200 on a pair of Levi's and just wear them for like 10, 100 years, whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think as cultures within organisations, we got a bit more comfortable with that. My first safety job, they used to have this team leader, which at the time we used to just hate that, he we just used to say it to everybody basically everyone he got rid of anyway so we would have like agency staff um so you would start as agency and you would transition over to contracted work which i think is pretty common now um and he would always say i'm not going to say i'm going to make up a company name McPherson, <laughs> mcpherson's manufacturing right he would always go mcpherson's manufacturing is not for you and you're not for McPherson's manufacturing. And then that would be it. They wouldn't come back and he would crack on. And it used to be annoying because he'd say it to everybody. I mean, oh, that's what he says to everybody. But like, <laughs> he kind of was onto something there. Like, like just being comfortable with just saying, you know what? You don't fit in this team. The team doesn't fit to you. Like, yeah. and that's not bad. It's just, it's not ideal for you because you've got to go and find another job. It's not ideal for me because I've got to go and find someone else. But it just is what it is. Absolutely. And it's really stressful being in a job that you either or with a, an organization that that, that that fits not right. Yeah. It's incredibly stressful. Mm. So you're you're absolutely right. For people's well-being, being that honest is actually the right thing to do. Yeah. yeah. And I do think I you know, I get people saying to me regularly, Oh, do you think people can really change? And I have 100 percent of, of course, if you know the way the brain works, it, it's changing all the time. Mm. So absolutely, people can change. You've just got to give them the right conditions. But of course, in a safety critical environment, you don't necessarily have the luxury of spending that time. So I think you're right. There has to be, you know, the co safety culture and behavioral safety isn't the soft option that people think. Mm. It is actually more about um, 
it's it's making because i'll tell you people feel comfortable when they are aligned because we are societal they feel comfortable they know their boundaries they know their expectations once those foundations are in place that's when you get innovation and creativity which again is is a, you know a, a symptom of psychological safety mm. and so as a business actually it's a good business model isn't it to get everybody in that safe space that great foundation um it's not just about safety it's it's about a business a flourishing business mm. oh, i love that interesting when you kind of did you when when you were in that posi- that point in your kind of career where you were you were like oh this this going over to this tech company um seems really interesting at that point was it that particular bit that they were doing or did you already think like actually what what we need is a bit of tech like cuz I, I see tech as like huge potential if we can do it right and we can utilize it right which some tech I've seen, I'm like, oh god, no, that's just um, well done for spending loads of money on just another thing to hit the worker with. But then, but when you get a company like a tech company that that gets the right ethos and like kind of what we're talking about, but then you have these entrepreneurs who are just amazing at just solving, just love a problem and like have the resources and the ability and the knowledge to fix that problem with some technology. Love that. So, did you did you see tech as like something that was really going to help us, something we need, or did you kind of stumble across it, or was it kind of a bit of both? It was a bit of both because the job that I was in previously, I was I was of the mind that we needed to start creating something um, like digitally in order to be able to get out to the masses and and really make um, a difference to a lot of different companies. But I didn't know what that was. Yeah. So yes, I knew that we needed a platform. Um, for me, you know, I, I look at my um smartwatch and and think, what could I do? Or an app, what could I do? They were my limitations. But you know, you go into a company uh, like Tended, and as you quite rightly said, they are just they love a challenge. And it wasn't it wasn't actually um difficult for them as soon as I started talking it was almost like I was downloading what was in my head and they were creating this platform like somebody knitting (laughs) knitting it out in front of me you know um and it's got more and more refined and more and more sophisticated at the back end but the front end has stayed really simple so that clients um can just take a look at what they've got, what their safety culture is, and know what to do about it. Mm. And I honestly think that that's unique in the market Mm. because it's a whole cycle. It's from start to finish, and it's monitored in between as well. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And we also put – it's not just – I mean, the, the software and the hardware there's almost a supposition in the way I say this because they are accurate and they are very reliable. Um, But I almost presupposed that because they, the people that I work with are actually incredible um, at what they do. And so what we also do with the hardware is I put a lot of time in, in engagement because this is another thing where 
companies don't always they'll introduce something like a new hardware for safety and and just hand it over you know we've decided we're doing this and here you are you will use it um but we want people to have that emotional connection with it and so it's my job to start off building trust with the company and the people us attended and then eventually with evidence because people don't trust anything unless they've got evidence mm-hmm. and then they'll use the hardware and with evidence then they'll start to trust that so then we can transfer you know some of that trust from us to the hardware and then we can start making that emotion that emotional connection as people do with smartwatches and, and their phones and things mm-hmm. like that so it's we think about everything that we do first from a safety point of view because that's our mission is to use technology to save lives and we also but we also make sure that the people element is is really heavily baked into our products and part of our service You, you you've kind of touched on it already but one kind of one question i kind of asked nearly every tech company that, that we talk to um is, is kind of um, which you have touched on but how, how do you make sure that tended and the, and the technology that you provide to your customers is used in a way that you want it to be used in because i think that's really you know we, we work really closely with a company that um can utilize a, a business's existing cctv and then their ai basically analyzes all of that Mm. and um, creates loads of data to inform the safety team and the leadership team to basically make better decisions and and we've seen i've seen so many versions of that and they're always sold as whacking the worker here's a thing that just kind Bam, Jules is not wearing a high vis, you know, and yeah. and it's just like oh, that's just we don't need that. That's not but what I need is what AI can do really well is give me loads of data and trends and stuff like that to help me do my job better. So when we were talking to Dan at the expo, um, that was kind of one first thing I asked him was like, what 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 are you trying to achieve with this? And, and when he said. Like, we just want to give people better information to make better decisions. I was like, ah, oh, you're singing for my hymn sheet. So the next question was, how do you make sure your customers use it for that? Because yeah. it's very easy for us to like the internet's a beautiful, amazing thing, but it also can do some really nasty stuff. So how, how do you, and again, I know you've touched on it, but how, how do you guys, when you're working with a customer to make sure they're using it and how you want them to use it? So first of all, I totally resonate with with that because one of the first things that uh, wearers say is, is it tracking me? Yeah, exactly, yeah. So there's there's that historical legacy of mistrust, isn't there? And this is why I said we have to build trust with the clients and and the end users Mm. with us first because the technology, they need evidence. Um, and so, so the first thing is we, um, the hardware is randomly assigned. So nobody signs out anything. So that's the first thing. Um, we don't know who's got what device. Yeah. The second thing is the device is triggered, um, whenever there is, um, an unsafe act that is somebody in the geofencing space, that's somebody going to the boundary. Um, and 
It's, so the data that's coming in is aggregated. We only know that that device, we don't know who it's assigned to, but we only know that device has gone. And then that data is aggregated. It's aggregated for us. We don't know who's using that device. Um, however, we do know that, for example, if a track worker is working alone, they have to like leave the gang and that device goes off, then the chances are that the the person in charge would be able to identify that that was the person that went off on their own so you know i agree that technology and wherever there is human behavior there will always be misuse of technology if if they are you know so wish but what we do is we aggregate all of the data and so whenever we uh, give back the reports it's it's always in a format that says we are seeing um, trends in this because what what we want to do is be totally positive about this. What we expect to see, for example, if if a gang are working on a new site that they're unfamiliar with, then you would expect you would expect to see quite a few um, alerts and triggers going off yeah. because, they're, because they're unfamiliar. But what we expect to see then is that over the shift, that mind's eye line is there and then they don't they don't go towards it so what we're reporting on is a change rather than the trigger which we're reporting on the change that's mm. happening the change of behavior because ultimately that's what we want that's mm. what we're about is are we is our technology helping to change workers mm. behavior to be safer and that's and that's what we do so, and, so, and we and we would never ever um we we never just hand over raw data to our clients it's always filtered into a format that is positively you know can only be positively used yeah. wow wow george i've kept you for a very very long time and um it's been it's been a pleasure thank you very much if if um people are really interested in what you're doing attended and wanted to find out some more it's uh i assume the website connect connect with you what's the best way to to yeah. find out some more yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. They can go to our website. Um, they can go to info at tendered.co.uk. Um, if the people want to link in with me um, through LinkedIn, then I'm more than happy to talk to them some more. Um, we're always putting materials out on LinkedIn. So you could follow Tended on LinkedIn and that would, you, you know, we're putting out articles out all the time. Awesome. We'll put links to um, your LinkedIn, the tended LinkedIn, yeah. tended websites in the in the description as well, so people can get those. But thank you. Thank, thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you, James. Yeah, DP. All right, all right. That's enough. DP dear at the door. So that's worked out very well in time. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jules. All right. Take care. Okay, peeps. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you need any help with this stuff, we've linked uh, Tended and all of their details and Jules' details uh, below as well. Or if you're looking to engage with a consultant for kind of culture, human performance type stuff, behavioral stuff, or even just basic safety, whether you're a safety team or a small business d director, we've got solutions to work with all of you and help you out and help you ultimately rebrand safety check out riskfluentltd.com or email me james at riskfluentltd.com otherwise i'll catch you next week safe
The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson.